Yeah, I'm ready whenever you are, man. <laughs> All those nuts better be gone. Because you, you, you literally can't eat them for the next hour and a half. You'll eat nothing for the next hour and a half. They're gone. Let me just wash them down. <laughs> Broadcasting live from Beef <laughs> <laughs> Broadcasting live from Beef Station HQ, orbiting high above planet Earth. It's episode 18. I'm Oscar. And Andrew. What are we doing this week? Well, uh, we are diving back into the annals of history to a genre that's kind of dead in a way. (laughs) Um, The Western. Yeah, it was a mutual decision, agreed at by both of us, uh, to to spend this week watching some old-ass movies about Mm. cowboys and, contentiously, Indians. Mm. (laughs) Um. So we decided, we took a, took a long time trying to pick some. I think the most interesting thing about Westerns as a genre is that it's clearly this genre that was beloved and that people had a fascination with yep. throughout the sort of 40s, 50s and 60s. Um, in the same way as like there are loads of movies about superheroes and things now, it kind of seems like you get the impression that there were loads of movies about cowboys and Indians and things all set in the kind of 1850s, 1860s. Uh, frontier America, yeah, and I thought it'd be interesting to explore, if only because it's a to- it's a genre of cinema that's just completely passed me by, and I wanted to go back and sort of look at maybe what's so interesting about it and what it is that like got you know <laughs> people's dads so so excited mm. about these kinds mm. of films. Um, so we took a bit of time to try and pick some that might give us a kind of broad sampling of the genre. Yeah. The most famous Western, I think that, I mean, I think it's fair to say most people at our age would have never seen a Western. I reckon right? if they have, they've inadvertently seen it. Like yeah. It's been on a TV somewhere. Yeah. And yeah. I suppose, I suppose it's difficult defining it because you get films like True Grit, which is that Coen Brothers film from like 2008 or Eight, something. I think, yeah. And I think that that is a Western. But I suppose what I mean by that is like... When really, I'm, it's a movie from 1969. Because well, you know, that's a remake. It's a remake, yeah. It's a remake of an old John Wayne movie. But but really, no one would have seen, in our age, really, I don't think, no one would have seen one of the Westerns from back in the, the, the golden age, heyday of Westerns. Classical Westerns. Or and so I thought it'd be really Westerns, interesting yeah. to go back and see. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. So we picked one classic Western. It's a John Wayne Western from 1956 mm-hmm. called The Searchers. Yep. Um, and then we decided... The most famous Western of all time. If no one's ever heard of any, you've heard of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah. Which and that's is ranked incredibly highly on like the IMDb 250 and yeah. Greatest movies of all time ranked. Yeah. Hugely critically acclaimed. It stars Clint Eastwood, who together with John Wayne is arguably one of the most famous Western stars of all time. I reckon now he was Eastwood in, is more famous than John Wayne. Yeah. Well, f- for us, yeah. He's sort of like a timeless star. He was in a shitload of these things. Yeah. And together with the, the director of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, he made loads with this specific director. Sergio Leone. Sergio Leone. Yeah. Um, an Italian director. Yeah. So, I don't really know much about Westerns, and I sort of got back into a bit of history of them. Yeah. Well, cool. I've got some context as well. Yeah. So cool. I, I figured it would probably be because... As, as mentioned before, this is not something the people of our generation, the majority of our, our listeners probably have any kind of association with, yeah. or even people today, really. Yeah. Um, so, I, I figured it would probably be a good idea before we actually delve into either of the movies that we watched to just 
give a kind of a bit of a context um, and a frame for like why anyone ever gave a shit about westerns and why yeah. it's kind of interesting to go back and look at them now. Yeah. Um, and what kind of baggage I guess they carry. Yeah. Right. And so I think. For starters, the most important differences between the two films we've chosen today is that the the Searchers, the one made in 1956, is like a classic Hollywood western. It stars um, <laughs> what's his name, John Wayne, John Wayne, who is this you know American everyman type type dude who is the cowboy. I think. Th- this You'll specific get no film, character names in this episode. Yeah, no, we don't know. We'll fucking remember them. It's going to be John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. Yeah, that's basically. It. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So John Wayne, I think this is literally his twelfth western that he had made with the director of that film, John sure. John Ford. I think. Um, significantly, though, the good, the bad, and the ugly is what was called referred to back then as a spaghetti western. Yeah. It was made in the mid '60s when the genre was apparently sort of dying off a, a bit in popularity, perhaps. Um, maybe not, but the point is that it was made by an made, written, directed, produced by Italians in Italy, yep. like super low budget. Um, and so people in America at the time didn't really consider them to be real westerns. So the term spaghetti western was like, no, nah, it's just an Italian made western. It's a spaghetti western. It was kind of like a derogatory term. And I think it's interesting that the good, the bad, and the ugly, despite that, has now grown and developed over time to be one of the most iconic westerns of all time and really sort of did something new and gritty and different with the genre and i think the differences between these films are like night and day but i thought it was worth saying up front that um they're kind of different sub-genres of western so you get we have like a classic traditional hollywood western and we have a spaghetti western which is almost like a tribute to those older westerns yeah. and sort of developed the genre moved it forward was made by people who sort of loved those films and wanted to do something a bit different with them. But they're all kind of set in that same style. It's not It's not like how people say like, oh, Star Wars is a space western and, you know, this is like a an, an acid house western and <laughs> or whatever. If you go to the Wikipedia page for western, there's like 20 different fucking yeah. genres of And you go through and you're like, nah, it's not a western, that's not a western, yeah. that's not a western. Cowboys and Indians set in like the 1860s. That's it. Mm. Um and so I think that's the most interesting thing about these two films, going back to a bit of context about these films. Yeah. Typically, they're all set under the backdrop of the Civil War. They're all kind of about living on the frontier of society. Um, you typically get these beautiful shots of sort of Utah National Park looking desert type stuff with big stone monoliths in the back. If you pick a, like, picture like cactuses and cowboy hats and shit, like that's exactly the kind of amazing imagery you get in all of these films. Um and we watched a little video essay before we started this where this guy was kind of talking about how go, all go the films... It. It's, it's called How to See... Uh, how to see. It's in a series called How to See Genre Films with Dave Kerr from the Museum of Modern Art in New York and it's called yeah. Is the Western Dead? It's fantastic. Highly recommend going And so he, he talks about how um, all these films are kind of about the coming of law and how new law defines this new society that's built up by outlaws and misfits and things right on the edge of the desert. And so all these films typically have like these little towns with ranches and horses and sort of nothing else. And you might get one hero that sort of comes out of the wilderness to save the day. And they talk a lot about how, and I think it's interesting, the idea of the theme of freedom, because these films were of course all developed and produced right after America had basically in their eyes won the world war Mm. and saved the whole of Europe. And so America is this sort of this savior 
of modern freedom and has kind of sacrificed itself for the good of the world. And in the same way, this guy talks about how there's lots of themes of like personal sacrifice and sacrificing the, the, the main cowboy hero in all these films always sort of sacrifices his own personal freedom. He could be out there living in the wilderness, but he sort of ventures into society and subjects himself to these new laws and sacrifices his own freedom for the benefit of pushing society forward and saving this little town. And they're all kind of about that. And I think in that way, it's kind of, it's kind of a bit heartwarming. It's kind of about a, a, a great migrant story of America as well. And there's a very much, you're talking about problematic types of, <laughs> problematic themes in these films. It very much romanticizes that era of Western migration. And I imagine there would have been a lot of problems with American Indians and indigenous people at the time that are sort of brushed over a lot, specifically in the searches we see that. Um, mm. But yeah, those themes of um, freedom and living on the edge of society are really sort of what drives these forward. And it's kind of why they were relevant, I think, contextually because that was right after a world war, right after you have this new growing modern society, really. And so you get these modern values that Americans are dealing with in the 40s and the 50s that are sort of given a new perspective in the way they're explored through these films that are all set on the 1860s. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, I thought it was interesting. So Dave Kerr, he speaks about the, like, the, the, the core irony that's at the heart of a lot of these movies is that... Um, in order for uh, the law, that new born law to be enforced, it needs to be enforced in, in ways through basically violence, um, yeah. which is exactly what those laws really at their heart are, are intending to protect from. Yeah. So the idea is, is that this, there's, there are these hero figures who need to be those law enforcers, whether or not they're in actual structures or not. Yeah. Um, but they have to use the means of that violence to protect yeah. against it. And in doing that, that's where their self-sacrifice comes from. And they sort of outlaw themselves from society because yeah. they're seen as these horrible, violent figures, but really they're... Mm. And they've witnessed, you know, too much. And, yeah. and and so I think one of the one of the things that he speaks about is um, coming off the back of basically the Pyrrhic victory of World War II. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of the... I think a lot of the, the people that, that had any experiences in World War II probably felt a pretty strong association with that idea of, um, you know, uh, someone being ostracized from the society that they had been um, either ordered or volunteered to protect. Right. And then not having the ability to really reintegrate with that society. So you're sort of um, talking about returning soldiers coming home from well, the war front in, in Europe, for example, maybe, and uh, yeah, that's a, finding their yeah. families not really feeling very comfortable with them anymore or finding that society has changed dramatically and they sort of haven't had a chance to catch up. Yeah, I mean, I think, like... Uh, it, um, it's a very specific example, but I think it's important to know that, like, um, when The Searchers came out, for example, World War Two had finished, like, 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Like... I think just anyone who's kind of witnessed too much kind of destruction or um, mm. enacted it, in, in some cases, like whether that's the families of people who are grieving for their loved ones or, you know, the economic victims of the war or whatever, yeah. um, you know, they, they've seen so much taken away from them and experienced so much loss that kind of returning to a structured, productive society was probably really difficult yeah. to do and not always, not always made easy by the society. So I think that sort of like general sense of dislocation and, um, and of um, disengagement 
was probably something that resounded pretty well with a lot of these people. Absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. it's really important to sort of tie back to the fact that all these films in the, these Westerns are set right after the American Civil War. Yeah. And Which again, these are made right after the major... So this would have been made after like one of the, the very next major wars that are in living memory in the US. Mm. And so you get this exact same theme. <coughs> and so you get that exact same theme of sort of having to rebuild a society after the scars of a war. And... Um, just, just the idea that 20th century society was going through very similar struggles to this, the the sorts of problems that were being depicted in these Western films. Mm. Um, I think, so I was listening to um, an episode of uh, another podcast that I listened to and uh, Matt Chrisman, who um, has studied a lot of history in his time, did an episode called uh, The Inebriated Past, The Monster Fash. Okay. And he speaks about the trauma of World War One where people kind of sought extreme answers to the questions that were asked by the Great War because really, to the average man or woman, it, it only brought kind of dislocation and horror. It brought no benefit. And it seems largely and pointless and sort of reeling. horrible. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's talking about it in the context of how fascism rose. But um, I think, yeah, like after kind of World War II, you see this um, global market start to take over and it becomes increasingly difficult for, um, you know, these films, they're based in a colonial era in terms of the the civil war the american civil war and off the back of that the battles between kind of the western european immigrants and yeah. native americans but in real life they're taking place right after exactly this this second world war yeah. so there's a lot of like parallels there i think of of um kind of looking at what the role of colonialism was in the modern world seeing that there you know i mean a lot of colonialism came from um exploiting vulnerable populations for gain and and they uh, these people were sort of starting to realize like oh there's not really many more places that we can do that um and i think that what what was really interesting to see just to give a little bit of um context that made me more interested in these movies is yeah. that what i saw was that you've kind of got birthed from that to or, or a transition of of kind of um western cowboy icons right you'll see where i'm getting to in a sec yeah so You've got earlier on in, in the searches, you've got this John Wayne character, right? And the searches was actually, you alluded to it earlier, but as much as it's a classic Western, um, it's actually right at the end of the lifespan of the classic Western because the real classic Westerns are um, really, they really go hard on that, like Cowboys and Indians theme, Type you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, a lot of the really problematic examples that you could come up with, with, um, with the portrayal of Native Americans in those movies come from that early classical Western yeah. setting. But the searches took a little bit more of a progressive view towards it. Um, some of the, like the, the John Wayne's main partner, um, who I can't remember the name of, but his kind of accomplice for the story is one eighth Native American. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of John Wayne's. I see what you mean. Sorry, the character that he travels around within the story. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, his, that's what I mean. His sort of. His sidekick. Yeah. Equivalent. Um, is one eighth American native, and he is John Wayne's character is extremely distrustful of that um, for the, most of the film. He's yeah. got some really horrible attitudes, and those are kind of. I guess the problem is that the movie doesn't question those too much, but it's it's. I think that maybe what I got out of so John Wayne seems to be sort of very sort of racially prejudiced against these Native Americans. What I got out of that maybe was that that might be sort of have that maybe that was more widely accepted as a view to have in the time because this is still like 1956 oh it was definitely more widely and accepted so I, but Henry Ford was there's there's a bit of speculation that Henry Ford might have been 
using that character because he he's he um, has a sort of Captain Ahab figure where he's um, there's a scene where he's murdering animals because um, he kind of has this thought that maybe um, Native Americans will use them to feed themselves and so right. he like senselessly slaughters cattle because they might end up benefiting a Native American people. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, examples like that kind of make him seem maddened by his yeah. his racial prejudice. And so I think there is a bit of criticism going on. So as much as um, the the searches is off the back of those Western, classic Western films, I think this one is actually a little more introspective a, and starting to ask questions. A bit of a step in the right direction. Yeah. Culturally. Exactly. Speaking. Yeah. Um, and so what happened for me between these two uh, movies was that you saw the the John Wayne figures for lack of so I'll, I'll kind of crystallize those into yeah. one, of, one of those examples where that is the classic cowboy who's against the Native Americans yeah and then what happened was you sort of transition ten years onwards which is not a really long amount of time actually but you get this transition into the the Clint Eastwood figure which you know the world has enough time to kind of start to process World War Two and sort then of along heal comes, a bit. Yeah, and then and, and they start asking questions, right, well if if the colonialist figure clearly there's there's you know, the the place and shape of colonialism is starting to to be to become clear in that there isn't yeah. anywhere else for it to go really. Um yeah. and so for me what happened was that they they needed to that exploitative freedom needed to kind of die. Yeah. And so well, the Clint Eastwood figures for me reflected a, a, a kind of understanding and an awareness of um, not just that the Western frontier um, versus American natives, but on the whole, that kind of idea of um, being lawless and being individual in a global economy doesn't work very well and kind of, is losing its place. And so I saw that um, personally as, as being what kind of Dave Kerr was speaking about, which is like those Clint Eastwood figures are asking questions like, how do you integrate that individual freedom with a growing society in capitalism? And yeah. you can't. And so what, what happens then? And also in the wake of a war, um, kind of what place do societies have for individuals who have been permitted to commit great atrocities and the answer is, well, they kind of don't have that place. Yeah. Well, know? so I studied a bit of German history at uni and we learned all about um, literature and how it changed in the decades after the mm. war. And they were talking about how like in the 60s, you started to get people, like young people that are going to university that were born after the war finished almost. Yeah. And so they're not, you know, they're not old enough to remember the war, but they're old enough to sort of start questioning about where their parents were during the war and sort of what sort of stuff might they have. Which is hectic when you're German. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but but they talked as well about how the 60s brought about these young people that started focusing on other political and social issues that didn't really have much to do with sort of reconstruction after the war. It was more to do with like stepping forward and moving past it yeah. and more d directly addressing things that happened in the war in a way that was sort of reconciliatory rather than sort of avoiding it and not really talking about it and sort of just being worried about the damage that it had caused. Um, and in the same way, you get this big step forward with Sergio Leone in the 60s with his Clint Eastwood films where this 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 mate from the video is talking about how um, no longer do you get these sort of cowboys that are out there defending society. It's really like Clint Eastwood's just some dude who's out for himself trying to find treasure. Yeah, he was saying that like the, the spaghetti westerns are very skeptical of the society that the yeah. initial classic westerns had kind of fought hard to protect yeah and so 
um, you know, the, the last kind of bastion of, for these people who value their individual freedoms is just, to, right, well, you need to be, yeah. you need to isolate yourself. So you have to remove yourself from society yeah. in order to do that. And it seemed a bit more honest to me. Like, it's it's nice to have, like, these stories about the like, cowboy saving the town kind of shit. But I really like the idea that, like, Clint Eastwood was just some guy who couldn't give a fuck about anyone, really. He was just out there to, like, save his own hide. Yeah. Um, and it's funny how, like, in just as, as a bit of real life political commentary, and then yeah. I promise folks, sorry for being boring, we'll actually get stuck in the <laughs> this kind of stuff interests me though because it's always, I find yeah. it's always nice to watch a film within its surrounding context but yeah well see yeah. I've never really been interested in this contextual stuff very much with other films I feel like because I can kind of the films the films I'm always possibly familiar with yeah but with these western films I sort of knew nothing about them and so other than just like oh it's just people shooting and cowboys and stuff I didn't really know and so to have someone sort of explain in a very sort of deep and meaningful way why Westerns were important. So I went, wow. Yeah. And I'd love, for example, to hear someone's similar explanation now for like why science fiction was so interesting in the 70s after the space race and that kind of thing and about how maybe that had inspired young minds to do science, whatever. I'll tell you all about that on another day because I've <laughs> yeah. literally studied those It'll, questions. Yeah, there you go. So like I re- I've just, it's something that I really got into yeah. as someone explaining to me why a genre that I'd never even touched before was really important and yeah. really meaningful for like a whole generation of people that's missed us. Well, yeah, so it's, it's interesting because like um, John Wayne in real life um, is a huge piece of shit. And he's like uh, a, a massive proponent of like hard old style republicanism. He's yeah. a big fan of the Vietnam War, huge fan of Richard Nixon. I mean, I imagine, if, is he still alive? I mentioned he's probably no, like 80 he's or some shit. Uh, right? He died yeah, of stomach cancer, I think. Um, cool. So... Uh, like he's he was he had some extremely conservative views and he was one of the people that was responsible for like or he was heavily involved in the Hollywood blacklisting process where yeah. which is where anyone in Hollywood during the 50s that was thought to have like ties with communism was completely ostracized and they made sure they could never work again and their names were besmirched and everything that's but, what that uh, Brian Cranston film about Trumbo was about yeah, yeah about yeah. how um some dude secretly wrote the script to the Audrey Hepburn film I think it was Audrey Hepburn Roman Holiday and then said that one of his mates wrote it and so his mate got the credit for like years and years and years yeah. for having written the classic Roman holiday the one of these Academy Awards and, and things and because he was blacklisted yeah. and if he'd put his name on it they would never have made it yeah and High Noon actually which is another incredibly famous western was an allegory for blacklisting that was made All by right. someone who then got blacklisted <laughs> the guy who yeah big surprise <laughs> I thought that maybe we were going to be like made by a guy who was already blacklisted but it's literally like he oh, makes it, it probably <laughs> already having trouble makes but. it in protest and they're like we see what you're doing fuck you um, the character from, give me two seconds because this is actually interesting, yeah. um, Angel Eyes, who's played by Lee Van Cleef, turned down the role of the protagonist in High Noon because he felt that it was too much to do with that black Hollywood process. blacklist. And I and think stuff. so did John Wayne, actually. Yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, the, um, the what, what, what I was getting to with that political stuff is that in real life, Clint Eastwood is a huge libertarian. And the idea behind libertarian I mean, he was born in October, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good one. <laughs> um, the, the thing about libertarians is that they believe in, above all, individual freedoms and the ability to kind of um, be self-sufficient and have that sovereign kind of agency. Right. And it, it's, it's, so it's interesting. So, it's interesting that those are reflected in the films that they start. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, kind of reflect also their characters. Um, mm. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean... It, 
hearing Clint Eastwood kind of speak now about the current political landscape, he's like, man, I just don't like anybody. <laughs> he initially came out as a Trump supporter above Hillary. And then, yeah, yeah he's like kind of since... Because he's always actually been quite progressive if you look at his views. He's just also been a massive libertarian. Yeah. And now he's kind of like... I don't know. It's, it's interesting seeing that libertarianism, even in his lifetime, modern, in a modern setting, um, a- a- as that person who values individual freedoms he himself is being dislocated and disenfranchised by society that yeah. has no place for those types of people yeah you know we're um, varying ver- uh we're verging dangerously far away from yeah movies about the american west so, so let's okay. dodge right back onto it. back in should we start with the searches yeah, i agree yeah. so that was made in 1956 mm. directed by oh, i think his name's john ford yes but i think that's the guy that invented the car we're all good henry john ford. henry ford John Ford. It was directed by John Ford. <laughs> Henry Ford made cars. <laughs> yeah. Made cars and then went out and branched out and started doing movies about the American West. Yeah. Uh, stars, John Wayne. Like we said before, he'd made a shitload of Westerns already. Yep. He has been like a huge star by this point. Um, have you got much to start us off with on the searches? Um, do you? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, right, so maybe we can start off by saying what it's about. So it's set in yeah, 1968, right. three years after the end of the Civil War. Um, opens on this sort of ranch house in the middle of a desert type thing. Uh, John Wayne is the uncle of the people that live there. He comes home from the, from the war. He served un, in the Confederate Army yeah. and they sort of haven't seen him for years. Who, in, in this context, was not a bad guy because of it, which is funny. <laughs> well, I think but... it's, it's set in the South. So, yeah. I mean, within the context of the film, he was fighting for kind of their freedom, if you will. Even he was 50s, fighting for man, their state. Even in the 50s, I think Confederacy would have been not as unpopular as it is now. I mean, but... yeah, I, to be honest, I don't know. But I think within the context of the film, it's just funny he's in an area times, where it's popular. Yeah, yeah exactly. A lot of these movies have like just as an undercurrent ring through them, obviously, as you yeah. said, they're in the backdrop of the Civil War, but, like, people are wearing um, Confederate uniforms and um, Yankee uniforms in... Is it Yankees? The uh, Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Whoever. The, I think they're officially the Union. The Union, sorry, is what I meant. Um, yes. <laughs> so there's, like, Confederate uniforms, Union uniforms. <laughs> this is where we find out, finally, in episode 18, which side of the Civil War Andrew's on. He's like, them damn Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. What confused me is they refer to Yankee dollars a lot in these movies, and I yeah, wasn't yeah. sure why. Well, the national currency like a, would be the union. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think Yankee is derogatory, but I don't really know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no. I yeah. Who knows? It's American history that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. But um, there's even a joke in um, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly where they think that certain soldiers are um, from the Union. No, from the they, they think they're Confederate soldiers because they're riding in the distance with grey. They've got grey uniforms, things. and so they're like, and then, "Yeah, up the Confederacy! We love the Confederacy!" Yeah. And they they get right up into the closer frame, and it's just dust on their blue Union uniforms, and they get thrown and in they prison. Like dust off the uniforms, <laughs> and it's clearly blue. It's actually a great. It's like slapstick as fuck. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a really funny moment. Um, um, but John Wayne. Yeah. Back to this film first. Sorry. Um, is a returning Confederate soldier. Um, they haven't seen him for eight years or something. And he sort of tells his old stories about the war. And then pretty soon after that, um, he has to go out with a local sort of sheriff and his men to sort of chase up these these stolen cattle. And while he's out there chasing um, chasing up these robbers who stole the cattle, um, I think it's... Is it is it Native Americans that go and burn down the ranch house? Yes, it's the... Um Ah, oh, fuck. Let's find the tribe. The Comanches. Right. Is so, the tribe name. A, 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 people from the Comanche tribe of Native Americans burn down this ranch house, kill a whole bunch of people, and, and loot, and kidnap the two young daughters. 
And so John Wayne and his partner, whose name is Marty. So Marty's like the son of the parents who are killed in this attack. Um, John Wayne and his, I guess, nephew Marty then go out into the wilderness to hunt for these, hunt for this tribe and get back these two young girls. Yep. And I think the most interesting thing about this film that I didn't really notice while I was watching it was time passes so quickly. Like, I think the film yeah, is the supposed to happen... over five years. Yeah, a, a, a crazy amount of time. It's five years, yeah. And so I, I, think, <laughs> I think maybe I was supposed to get it because you sort of see them traveling through summer and then winter and then summer and then winter again. <laughs> It doesn't really do it very well for I our standards. I don't now. think it does it very well. I don't think the passage get a, of time is very clear. We get a cue card now that said like five years yeah, later or whatever. exactly, or some character being like, "It's been five years," but yeah, which yeah. they kind of do. There's because they send correspondence and a woman reads uh, one of the women that's waiting back home to marry that's, dude. That's reads literally because yeah. they don't look any different. John Wayne and Marty no um, don't look any different. So it's literally the only time, the only indication you get that time has passed properly. Some woman just being like, "You've been away for two years." And you're like, "Oh, really?" Like Jesus Christ, that's a fucking <laughs> long time. Like, yeah, I'm on her side, man. Couldn't find her in two years. Yeah, yeah. Like, how are you still? Most of these people are probably dead by now. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so if you start off with the writing, I definitely thought that the whole Native American, sorry, I'm going to fuck that up so many times. I'm a good ca- person. They're in the settings of Cowboys and Indians. Yeah, so exactly. Let's just, uh, yeah, the, let's just edit out any <laughs> gentleman's na- agreement. The Native American um, plot line feels a little dated. Definitely. Yes, it does. It, and and this was actually um, one, of the, one of the more favorable portrayals of uh, Native Americans in Western films, yeah. as mentioned. So, yeah, I mean, like, uh, the, the, the Native Americans are given, they're given motivation and their characters are developed and one of the sort of protagonist supporting characters is himself part Native American. Yeah. Um, so, like, the it's way the that... 50s. He's probably a white guy with some, like, <laughs> some yeah, makeup well, on. But, uh, yeah. I, I read some some guy's critique that was basically, like, uh, it's not the instinctive, oblivious racism of birth of a nation. Um, countless Westerns have had that kind of racism, but this one kind of consciously focuses on that and critiques yeah. it a little bit. Also, but their portrayal is still... Yeah. Not great. They also, like they do the yell with the covering their mouths and shit whenever they're riding horses. Like it's yeah. yeah, it's pretty pretty bad. So there's they're sort of portrayed as like savages. One thing, thing that was interesting is I, I listened to a dollop episode where they talk about how many times that Native Americans were cast as sorry, that white people were cast as Native Americans and they yeah. just like rubbed a bit of dirt on their face, basically. Yeah. Um I think this film actually used Native American Actors. It certainly looks like for, it, yeah. For a fair bit of it. And that's probably something to do with the fact that it was later in the yeah. life cycle, but yeah. I think it's something that's important to get out of the gate 20 minutes into this episode after having talked about politics and culture for a good, a solid chunk of time, yeah. is that both these movies are really fun to watch. And they're deliberately made... I think on the whole, all these westerns are deliberately made to be entertaining and good fun to watch. There are action scenes, there are funny scenes... Even in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which I thought would be kind of serious, there are lots of scenes that are really funny and really great and lots of great shots. So on the whole, it's not like <laughs> it's not like the movie's looking at you and be like, doesn't this make you doesn't this remind you of World War II? It's just no. we were just giving a bit of a bit of a bit of context. The movies are really fun. Yeah, I mean they can be interesting to watch yeah. anyway, but um But yeah, so Yeah, certainly I actually felt like the, um the searches didn't have that same complexity to it. I thought it was more of a somber kind of film. No, I mean, um, t- yes, to be fair. All I meant was that there sort of d- seems to be made with entertainment in mind. And well, I just feel like we hadn't really led with that 
at the beginning. We've sort of cut straight to this analysis and hadn't said it's not boring. Yeah. They're fun. Go the watch bit them. at the end, which the, or the bit that we would usually talk about at the end, I. I wouldn't bother with the searches. I think it's too dated. Um, we only watched yeah. it for a point of comparison. Yeah. But the good, the bad, and the ugly, yeah, worth watching. Go back Definitely. And go back, go in on that one. S- um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 you go. Something that I think is a, a big uh, point of difference between the two films is that the search, because I watched the searches second. Um, oh, right. It's really bright and colorful. Yes. Um, you get a lot of, um, a, a lot of, Cheap and cheerful looking kind of shots where like yeah. they get like these very stereotypical looking like cowboy outfits that look exactly like how you imagine they are with the tassels on the sleeves and shit. Um, this kind of like home on the range ranch house type thing with a cactus in the distance and all this stuff. Um, so the sets and the costumes and the cinematography um, are definitely sort of bright and very kind of Hollywood. Yeah, and not just the sets, but the setting as well. Um, yeah. John Ford did some really incredible work with the surrounding landscape in this movie to the point where it, it inspired, um, I mean, Lawrence of Arabia is a film that was renowned at the time and still for its the way that it depicted landscapes. Yeah. And um, the director of Lawrence of Arabia uh, used the searches right. as like an instruction manual on how to film broad sweeping amazing landscapes and that, you really get that that bison shot you're talking about where he's killing all the cow that was a cool shot that was a really cool shot i like you the get one... this big wide shot of this huge herd of bison I, I don't think i've ever really seen video of bison before no well there's an there's a one shot right at the sort of early part of the movie where um jeffrey hunter who plays marty um runs up a kind of um dune or or up an embankment and yeah. behind him is kind of this dusk lit really beautiful azure sky and he's front lit from like the flames of his house and it's something that was actually echoed in a new hope i was about to say with, yeah when it george when lucas used his um his family home george lucas used a lot of shots and sort of paid tribute i guess to all of the searches yeah. and a lot of shots which is why it's referred to as kind of a space western yeah you know um but yeah so i actually liked i thought that the like obviously um it was a bit of a different point in George Lucas's film but yeah. sometimes uh the searches looked better than Star Wars um yeah. because the just the way that it managed to capture the that landscape it it really I think the strongest aspect of searches is is the the way that it depicts these beautiful landscapes and, yeah. and the you know it makes you it really kind of briefly gives you some insight into why these people thought it was such a, a thing that worth protecting and exploring and, and feeling a strong connection to. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely really liked watching all these people kind of living off the land and you yeah. can sort of totally understand. It made me want to be able to fuck that. off for months or years and not worry about like, what about my job? <laughs> it maybe it definitely does give you that sense of, of like kind of individualistic freedom. Yeah. Um, and, and the landscape really contributes to that. I think maybe because it's so barren and and yet has such kind of personality to it. Like there's these cliffs. It's something to do with the scale of the thing. Like you're so small in these in these deserts or these scrublands, and there's such massive things around you that you have no power over or ability to. You know, like it can kill you if you try and navigate it. Yeah. It's just such it, the way that that it's depicted is. Um. It it has such immense respect for the land. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, ironically. The, that was a point of contention between the Native Americans and yeah. <laughs> and the other Americans. So yeah, um, brutal. But as a film, it's 
really does that very well. I think that that was my favorite thing about watching The Searchers was just seeing how it treated the landscape. Yeah. And I actually kind of like the characters in The Searchers. I kind of like them. John Wayne's a dickhead. Yeah. I mean, his character, but I definitely, but I definitely understood fine. his character. Yeah. I definitely see where he was coming from. This old grizzled guy who sort of rather be alone. He sort of has a different view of the world. He sort of come back from this sort of struggle through the war. So, like, I understood his character. I thought it was great. I really liked the romantic storyline between Marty and Laurie, the <laughs> farm girl who Marty sort of drops back in and sees sort of every year or so, yeah. and they're kind of infatuated with each other, but never seem to be in the right place it's in funny, their lives the to sort it out. All of the analysis that I read was just like, what the fuck is with the romance plot? It's so shoehorned <laughs> and tacked on the end. I didn't think it was that bad. I thought it was all right. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. I mean, it was it, definitely... It, it was the only thing that gave you a sense of time. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, maybe it could have been better constructed, but like, I kind of like the idea that there's this girl that's waiting for him, and he's kind of waiting for her but they're never really at the right place in their lives to sort of mm. make anything of it and so I think he comes back once and she's glad to see him he comes back again a few years later and she's about to get married um, yeah. and I kind of like that as a way of I don't know maybe it kind of bumped me out a bit but <laughs> well it's just I think it gives you a sense of like what these people are sacrificing in order yeah. to be pursuing this pretty silly goal yeah <laughs> like yeah um, um, I it, think that was one thing is you didn't really understand like you, you met this daughter that had been captured for like all of two minutes and you're like oh, I don't really give a fuck M- mostly I'm just here for the cowboys and shit yeah yeah which I feel like maybe reflects why the movie like the purpose of the movie well I just yeah I mean in terms of the characters and especially with John Wayne's character because it spends so much time focusing on it mm. I just I found it just incredibly hard to dis- di- like to detach myself from the, the kind of modern perspective of watching this character where, like, yeah. he's a Confederate soldier, he's a fucking racist. Like, I just hope that he gets shot by a Native American and dies, yeah. you know, but then there wouldn't be a movie. So, yeah, yeah it was like, I, I didn't I didn't really enjoy it that much. Do you um, care if we spoil this movie? I don't think... No, I, I wouldn't even say watch it, so I yeah. think we should uh, just talk I about it. I think it was an interesting experience, and I think, I'm think i sure there's loads and loads of films that are exactly like this you can go and watch. So if you're really interested in, in the searches, I think it, it might be worth your while if you're interested in that kind of old yeah. American Hollywood-type Western thing, because it's apparently a good example of those kinds of films. But... Here we go. Um, the bit at the end where you sort of find out where this daughter is is that the daughter has been captured by this Native American tribe and brought up. So as that's one what of happens them. at the start. But you find out just before the end section yeah. that yeah, she's been kind of incorporated into their and brought tribe up structure. as sort of one of their family and yeah. a member of the tribe, and she's really happy living with the tribe. Um, yeah, they actually find her, and she says like. Go away. Then, yeah, these are my like, people now. Yeah. And so the weird bit for me, and the bit where like I hadn't, I sort of brushed off some of the weird racist shit that John, John Wayne's character was doing throughout the film. Like, yeah, it's about cowboys and Indians, so I'll accept this fine. Um, but then the weird bit was like where John Wayne was like, right, well, she's she, she thinks she's one of these Indians now. I'm gonna kill her. Like, yeah, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. John, John Wayne was His like, point we went in the out- movie is to murder that that young yeah. girl. He, they, they go out to find this girl. They've been literally searching for her for five years. Yep. And as soon as he finds her and sees her in like a headdress and, you know, the, the Native American makeup, he's like, no, nah, I'm going to kill you. Well, actually. Which, which is also like a weird turn for so, me. I thought like even within the context of like maybe that kind of racial attitude towards Native American culture being acceptable then. Mm. That was even a weird turn for me. Well, like, that's what, you would that's have like thought- Captain Ahab character coming in where he's like maddened by his racism. You know, yeah. It's like. The, if you look at the sensible, like you don't even need to why kill her, just leave her alone, you know. Yeah. Like, but it it's it's his rage at the Native Americans that causes him to yeah. pursue that so senselessly. And so then Marty and, the Young is like, no, 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 don't, don't kill yeah. her. Yeah, and like yeah. because it's he, he, his view is that because she's been captured and and um, assumedly um, there's been mixing going on. 
um, because he says at one point, like, as soon as she comes of age, she'll be a bride or whatever. Yeah. Um, and as soon as that happens, so that time, the age that he's talking about elapses while they're searching for them. And yeah. so I think from that moment, like, as soon as she's kind of been tainted by... Yeah, no, this is how fucking bad his yeah. character is. Like, as soon as they, she's been tainted by that Native American kind of, like, wilding influence, yeah. he's like, right, well, I guess it's too late. Time's time's up. We just got to murder her instead. I guess we got to kill her. Yeah, it's real fucked. <laughs> it's really and, fucked. Um, and I, so, to the, the big spoiler, I guess, at the end of the movie is that they finally catch her... Um, at the end of it, I didn't get this. She changes her mind. Yeah, for she's no just reason. like, oh, finally, the you've come. Time, they sort of yeah. lead a raid onto the uh, native. So camp. the first time she's like, "These are my people. Fuck off." Yeah. And the second time, she's literally like, "Thank God you're here. Take me with get you. Get me out of here." It's you're like, so Whoa, what? weird. <laughs> it's so weird. I have no. I I thought I missed something, but if you're saying that too, okay. Yeah, cool. no, it was really weird. It's so fucking bizarre that she mm. just changes her mind. It was one of the worst scripting like 180s I've ever seen. Yeah. But instead of killing her, he kind of John Wayne. Picks her up and says, "Let's go home," and then they do, right? Yeah. Um, so it's and just so like the point briefly, is like he saw red for twenty redeeming. minutes. <laughs> yeah, the point is he's meant to have been like this. This it's meant to be this massive redemption, but he's still just a huge racist piece of shit for all of the movie. Yeah, and like, I she just doesn't want to be there. Yeah, I just hate him. So yeah. and it's the end of the sixties. It's not as if she's getting electricity and running water when she gets back to the ranch house. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. Well, even then, like. It's there's not less of a value to that, and this is the whole point of like that anti-colonialist movement is that just because you perceive a civilization as being less developed than yours yeah. doesn't mean that it is less developed than yeah, yours. Yeah, no, absolutely. But like John Wayne's character is so so far down the rabbit hole of the other yeah. the other pathway that yeah. even if you've had sex with someone from that part of that <laughs> society, you are less than dead you're yeah. better off dead yeah like it's insanity how how um how racist he is to his core yeah. so obviously the film does criticize that but it doesn't criticize it quite enough and a lot of people at the time and this is something interesting that i was reading about a lot of people at the time probably didn't find his views particularly unreasonable yeah especially not compared to what they would now so yeah exactly that is a bit of a struggle and and you know a lot of the um in, to to delve past a lot of um I guess we kind of covered the 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 writing and the script, which is very campy and of the yeah. age that you would expect. Um, it felt a little bit like watching one of those like Citizen Kane, like old movies. You know, it's it's um it's definitely of the fifties. <laughs> you could sort of like appreciate that it was once considered good, and you sort of and have now to it's like definitely not. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, maybe it's just that the 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 themes in the movie and the writing overall were a bit camp and a bit. Aged. They're, they are the most aged bits. But I the think, rest yeah. of the film I thought was great. I think it was mostly interesting the whole way through. I thought that... Just go um, look at National Geographic photos <laughs> of Utah yeah. or whatever. But I think as, as an introduction to the genre, I thought it was, I thought it was right. Yeah. The, the one last thing was that the music in these films is really noticeable. And so in yeah. this one, it has like Hollywood strings and sort of really sappy, rich... Or orchestration. They've even got like this fucking moment where one of the characters gets kicked in the butt, and it's like there's there's like a big string and a drum going whoop, whoop, <laughs> and he, as he gets like kicked and, and like a yeah. cymbal crash. It's got like almost like slapstick. There are parts of it which are very like, oh god, this was made seventy years ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. But, um, uh, but yeah, so I, I guess we'll swap to good, the bad, and the ugly, which is yeah. Um, what what ground they covered in 10 years. Right. And um, so The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is made 10 years later, yeah. 1966, right in the middle of that whole changing era that we were yeah. kind of talking about before. Directed by Sergio Leone. It was Clint Eastwood 
to my knowledge, his third film that he'd done with Sergio Leone in this period of time. He did... Um, they now consider the trilogy, but we looked it up before, and they're apparently not really related in any other way, other than the fact that all the same kind of people worked on them. And al- also, apparently, they share a lot of the same um, arcs and tropes, and they're, yeah. they're kind of a thematic trilogy, but definitely not a narrative yeah. trilogy. So I think originally we were going to watch Fistful of Dollars, A Few Dollars More, and then The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. That's yeah. the three films in this trilogy, but we the worked Man out they're kind no of... name trilogy. Yeah, we worked yeah. out they're kind of unrelated, so we just went for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly because that's the most famous one. Yeah. Um, and apparently the best. Yeah, and what do you think of... Overall, I thought it was so cool. Yeah, this one was actually a, a genuinely good film. So it's, it's nigh on three hours long. Yeah. Um, and at points, I found myself genuinely compelled by the storyline um there were moments of tension where i couldn't i absolutely had no idea what was going to happen so many moments of tension it it wasn't one of those things where you're like oh yeah i get i get what this is where that came from like it's not like that there were i I didn't know how characters would resolve situations i didn't know how they would get out and i genuinely found myself wanting to know what would happen yeah this had an actually compelling storyline which i really didn't expect because um as you might have alluded you had come from the search as well fuck this (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, and even before the searches, I was like, man, fuck Westerns. I don't care. Um, it's not a genre that I care about yeah. at all. But I get why this kind of has the acclaim that it does. Yeah. Um, it, because it's not a bad movie to watch even 50 or 60 years later. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's some weird stuff about it. So I guess let's oh, let's go through what, what the kind of plot is first. So... Um, yeah, the, you go. The, the main... So the good, the bad, and the ugly... <laughs> They are in the film label as the three, three specific of ice characters cream in Neapolitan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which one's which? Uh, I think, objectively speaking, the strawberry flavor in Neapolitan ice cream is the best. Yep, um, I was going to say the good. If yep, you, you want to go, like, get yourself a bit of a less black and white kind of view of the world, if you get the scoop right in the middle of the strawberry and the vanilla, that's the best. That's like, okay, you're good and a bit of your bad, and yep. the chocolate is the ugly. See, I was going to agree with all of those. Okay, <laughs> subjective fact, strawberry is the good, vanilla is the bad, chocolate is the ugly. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Right. I think, yeah, vanilla's not even that bad. I reckon it's kind of all right. No, but of those three things. It's the good, it's the all right, the, and the ugly. Because chocolate is the ugly fun, which is you, basically exactly <laughs> what Tuco is in, <laughs> in um, good, bad, and the ugly. It's a little ugly fun. The main, um, uh, main kind of... And Protagonist, protagonist. They're all yeah. There so, are so three there, protagonists. There are three protagonists. Um, I guess two protagonists and one antagonist. The film starts up by introducing Angel Eyes, who is yep. the bad. He's this sort of hitman, um, nasty, out for himself yeah. guy. Bounty hunter um, dude. Yeah. There's the ugly, which is Tuco. He's this sort of Mexican bandit who. Um, they're all kind of selfish. I don't think any of them are particularly good. Yeah, so to label Clint Eastwood as the good yeah. is really like, okay, fine, I'll take your word for it because he's Clint Eastwood and he's the main he's character. He's the least bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, so and then therefore Clint... earns title of the good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Clint Eastwood is the good. Funnily enough, Clint Eastwood is the character you learn the least about. Yeah. Tuco seems well, to think... really be sort of the character that's the most fleshed out yeah. and the most... Um, Given the most backstory. The most backstory. So it starts off with introducing Angel Eyes, who is the ugly. He's this hitman guy. Sorry, Angel Eyes, who's the bad. The bad. He's this hitman guy. Um, He's played by, yeah, as I said, Lee Van Cleef. Um, yeah. Who has he really good casting actually? Um, apparently, he got typecast as a bit of a villain, and this he film was, was fantastic, igniting, really ignited his career. Yeah. Um, 
but he has such a good face for playing that kind of yeah. like mysterious antagonist. And this like evil laugh he's he has. He's got a really pointy nose and sharp features and stuff. And yeah, he's got a real deep voice. Yeah. Like he's a very good actor. I really liked watching him. And he was mm. a genuinely kind of threatening, intelligent antagonist. Yeah. So yeah, really I think cool. They, I love the way they set the characters up. So I think- That's oh, really good. It's yeah. not a spoiler. It's like within the first 10 minutes, the way they set up Angel Eyes as a character, he comes in to sort of murder this guy. We'll Into call him- cantina bar, yeah. Yeah, we'll call him, I don't know, fucking Robert or something, just because I'm about to say, I'm about to say this guy about three different dudes and it's going to get confusing. Yep. He comes in to murder Robert and he's like, Robert, I've been sent here to kill you. I've been paid $1,000 by Tim and Tim wants me to murder you. And Robert's like, right, well, I mean- I'll give you $2,000 to, to not k- murder me. Yeah. <laughs> so he, so Angel Eyes is like, I always, I always fulfill a contract. So this is it. This is how you die. And t- t- Robert's like, whoa, 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 I'll pay you to kill Tim. How's that sound? He goes, sounds like a plan. Yeah, sounds good, Matt. <laughs> Kills Robert, takes his money, and then goes back to tell, uh, tell Tim. He goes, hey, Tim, just like you asked me to do, I, I killed Robert. And he goes, oh, cool. How'd it go? And he goes, yeah, can you believe this? He wants me to kill you too. And Tim's like, and they have a laugh about it, and then Angel has kills him too. He's like, but I always fulfill a contract. Yeah, (laughs) I think that broached the terms of the initial contract, actually. But hey, whatever. He's got two dead dudes and a big, a big pocket full of change. Three thousand (laughs) dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's introduced that way. Um, Tuco and Clint Eastwood's character have then buddied up. And the idea is that Tuco will go out and get deliberately caught by whatever local sheriff it is. And then right before he gets hung and sort of his last rites are being read and he's on the horse with the noose around his neck and they're about to sort of um, uh, get Tuco hung, Clint Eastwood comes in at the last second and shoots the noose away from his neck and Tuco rides away into the sunset and they split the, they split the bounty 50-50. Yep. And so that's kind of... So he's established as like this crack shot yeah, yeah, crack like, shot kind, kind of guy, of exactly. Ill of the law, but yeah. Yeah, that's why he was like the good, and then he's immediately like cheating the local yeah. <laughs> local like law enforcement yeah, divisions. So, uh, that was something that I that I kind of thought was interesting, because I wasn't sure if maybe that would have been a little more favorable back in the time when this was filmed, kind of that anti-establishment, like yeah. um, maybe vigilante. Maybe they've got a bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly in all of in them. In all of them. Uh. That's that Neapolitanus <laughs> right across the middle. <laughs> All three. Oh, that's like um, that chaotic, chaotic, lawless. If you if if you yeah. were to scoop <laughs> yeah. the other way, like crossing all three flavors, Jesus that's Christ, that's chaotic good. Yeah. <laughs> um, chaotic neutral, I guess. That'd be. <laughs> that's the Joker. Um, so one of the, one one thing that we did skip over there is that when Lee and Cleef, when Angel Eyes is um, killing whoever the fuck it is, what what name did you use? <laughs> I don't know. The first dude, Robert. Robert. When Angel Eyes <laughs> is killing Robert. Um, Robert says, uh, I don't know anything about that box of money. <laughs> <laughs> At which point, Angel is like, like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> slow down there, cowboy. <laughs> like, what are you talking about a box of money? And then he goes over to Tim and he's like, hey, Tim, yeah, Robert told me to murder you. And also he said something about a box of money. You know anything about a box of money? The guy's like, I don't know anything about a box of money. He's like, great. Well, he paid me $2,000 to kill you. And so the rest of Angel character arc is trying to find... The big box of the money. The big box of money. And he needs to find the guy who buried that box of money, who is... An old Confederate soldier who's yeah, on his way home from the war. Who I'm going to say is Jimmy, because I can't remember his <laughs> name. And he's got one eye. That's the important part of yeah. it. Yeah. They all have so cool names, like Bill Monroe and shit and, like yeah, that. Yeah, he's so. changed his name. So the uh, Angel Eyes needs to go and find him. 
Uh, he needs he to track him down. Find the soldier who's now living under an alias. Yeah, and so part of what he needs to do first is find someone who knows what that alias is. Yeah. Because he knows that he can't find the guy, and therefore the guy's changed his name. So that's his his character motivation. Yeah. And can you remember how the other two find out about the box? Yeah, so I think they're sort of journey... So a whole bunch of shit happens. The film the is really long. the box is the linchpin of the movie. Yeah, exactly. That's what so, everyone's kind of moving towards. Yeah, so th- there's a whole bunch of shit that happens. The movie almost feels like three little TV TV episodes because like there's a whole like you know Clint Eastwood and Tuco journey together for most of the film and they sort of they they accidentally join the army and there's a whole twenty so minutes where they where they're in the army yeah. and then they, they act- have like and, multiple yeah. subplots yeah and then they sort they of go to a monastery go to a monastery <laughs> and they're there for a bit and then they do this for a bit and so you're like oh man what they're wacky adventures it's kind of like you're watching three seasons of a TV show play out over three hours yeah um, at some point during their adventures they come across this wagon that's sort of crashed in the desert and there's it's full of like all these dead soldiers who've been killed in some raid there's one last surviving guy who they give a bit of water and he reveals the fact he reveals to Tuco so that is how it happens yeah so the soldier this this soldier who's the guy that Angel Eyes is looking for he's like oh I'm I'm Bill Monroe I I buried a big box of money in this cemetery and then Tuco gets distracted and goes off and then Bill Monroe um dies and Tuca comes back from doing what the fuck he was doing he's like oh fuck we didn't find out where in the cemetery he's buried and Clint Eastwood's character's like he told me the name on the grave. Didn't tell me which graveyard there. Yeah. And the reason and so, why Clint Eastwood isn't cooperating and doesn't tell Tuco is because they Clint Eastwood fucked Tuco over and then Tuco catches up with him and, and fucks, fucks him Clint over. Clint Eastwood over. So it's this sort of like hate hate relationship yeah. they have. But so the the cool bit of writing I liked was that Tuco knows where where which the money cemetery. which cemetery the money's buried in and Clint Eastwood knows which grave it's buried in yep. and neither of them will tell the other because there's so, like 5,000 graves even though they have to even though they hate each other and would much rather steal all the money for themselves they have to keep each other alive that was which is this cool mechanic the because, strongest me- I, I yeah. actually made an explicit note about that I yeah. think that's probably one of my favourite things about this movie he hates him and he hates him but neither of them can get the other one killed and they have to so there's all these gunfights where like they're um, They're protecting, protecting each other. Protecting each other. <laughs> yeah, it's like, because, I'm not letting you die, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> like $200,000. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, oh, I just thought it was such a fun film. Yeah, like you said, it was like watching their wacky adventures. Device. I don't know how much that's been used before. I've never seen it before. Um, I thought it was really cool. Well, I feel like it must have been used in modern films because it's a really good idea of like, someone knows something, another person knows something else, and each person's information renders the other one yeah. useful. Um, and I really, yeah, I really like that idea of like, the other, you know, you can't read their minds, so yeah, exactly. you have to keep them alive. They have to tell you. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I thought it was really cool. I think it, it cool. also helped in this film, you know, that given the opportunity, every single character would fuck the other one over at a moment's notice. Yeah, and, <laughs> and they all know that. None yeah. of them is naive. Exactly. And so they're all just like every second. Like, yeah, there are multiple a- times when Tuco will be like reaching for a gun while he's asleep, and yeah. then he'll just wake up and be like, don't even think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, yeah. Tuco will be like, hey, Clint, why don't you tell me the name of the grave? Like, why don't you tell me the name of the cemetery? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, oh. it's really funny. The most recognizable thing about this film, as soon as it starts, is first of all, you hit play, and it starts with the most iconic film music of all time. Yeah, so the music's by Ennio Morricone, um, who is the um, so he he's like one of the most iconic film scorers of all time. If you look him up, he's written the score for like. A shit ton of movies. Yeah. Um, most recently, he did the score for The Hateful Eight, 
that Quentin Makes Tarantino sense. worked on. And it's another of those things where like Quentin Tarantino was he's a huge fan of these old westerns, huge fan of the um Inicio Mercioni. The Untouchables, so, Once Upon a Time in America. He's done a I lot I think of he stuff. did the mission. He did a whole bunch of westerns. Yeah, I'm only listing stuff from his um top 19 movies grossing over $20 million at the box office. Yeah. So he's done a lot. <laughs> and he's still alive. He's like fucking 90 or something yeah. now. But great music. Fantastic music in this film. where the DMCA notices finally get us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's on our vocal impersonations of music. <laughs> the most iconic movie, music of all time. And then something I thought was really interesting was the idea that all of this music uses the electric guitar. Mm. An instrument that didn't exist back then, but somehow we we associate all of that music with the old west. Yeah. Twangy electric guitar music when they didn't exist back then at all. And I think that maybe part of it is um yeah, I watched this video where they were saying it's kind of inspired by surf music. And so the guitars that play um Dick Dick Dale kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he did Mizzaloo. Yeah, I go there you go. Yeah. So like all this surf music. But then it's like under this sort of like rolling kind of drum thing that gives it this like Western feel to it. Um yeah, yeah, true. And I think maybe part of that is probably just because they didn't have the money to get an orchestra <laughs> involved for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So it's a lot of like whip cracks and like gunshots and stuff to like embellish so the music, weird. which so is so cool. So watching the opening sequence, there are, I think it's meant to be thunder or cannons or something or gunshots, yeah. but like, like 50 of this noise <laughs> to the point where I was doing something else during the opening credits and I looked over just being like, what the fuck is going on? Because it was just like a lot of like... <laughs> it was just a name every time but it yeah. was like like not kidding like 30 or 50 of the these names noise. Like, so, so, so. I think all of, all of the names would be at the end of the film and like a closing credits these days were the opening credits so these opening yeah, credits yeah, go yeah, for like yeah. there's 8 no, minutes there's no end credits <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true. Um, but oh, I just thought like you're like oh, I'm watching this movie and you get like the coolest music ever so, something that's important about the sound as well yeah. is that all of the dialogue is dubbed later. Basically, everything in this movie is... Yeah, everything you hear in this movie is done in a studio after the film is recorded. All of the dialogue is dubbed in later. Yep. So, so the whole movie was probably filmed silently, I think because back in the day, to film audio well outdoors on location was really fucking expensive. Yeah, and apparently the... Uh, Italian film studios had absolutely shit sound insulation and sound production quality, so yeah. they just didn't even bother. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and and so for some of the actors, they're really good at matching up their lips with the stuff, and for other actors, you just have to be like, oh, no. they are not <laughs> really good. It was so weird because I've had people say, oh, I thought that movie was in Italian. It's not in Italian. It's in English. It was filmed. The people were speaking English. Director's Italian. It was made in Italy. Yeah. But. 
the dialogue matches so poorly <laughs> sometimes they're not even saying the same line it's yeah. totally different like i had one example of like it was like the the audio was like oh yeah what is baker paying you and his lips clearly say what are you being paid like it's completely different oh, i wish i got through it oh, it was cool. so fucking different <laughs> and like there are times when characters aren't even moving their mouth but the line keeps going yeah. so it's a bit like um it's a bit like watching a like a japanese dub yeah but the characters are speaking the same language yeah. as <laughs> their well, post-dub audio. You sort audio. of stop noticing after a bit. You though, do, right? and it gets it, a lot better. The intro was dodgy. Yeah, it was. But Ooh, it gets better. Back when I used to live in Germany, um, you, you get... Cin- maybe people don't know this. Clang. Yeah, clang. Um, you get cinemas over there showing big mainstream American movies. So, like, there are some German films that are popular, but most of the films that are popular are the big American movies. And they are... Like in, they're dubbed in German. I don't know why you needed an example of big American yeah, sorry, I didn't. Thank you. Th- Why my example thank you, but was I didn't. fucking you're like, die hey, hard. Hey, die hard, you're welcome. Like The <laughs> Avengers, for example, um, it's all dubbed in German. And if you go to France, all the movies will be dubbed in German, <laughs> in French, obviously. <laughs> um, which I think that I'd never really noticed until you go over and you're like, oh, of course, not everyone's going to be able to speak English well enough. Yeah. And so you get that same thing where like, they're not even trying to say the same line. They're saying shit in German. And so it doesn't match up ever. Well, I'm, just I'm revealing a big secret that I have here, but I've watched a fair few Japanese productions and tend to watch some of the English dubs because people yeah. who think that subs are better are fuckwits. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like you get used, your brain gets used to it after a while. Yeah. People were talking about how like... Oh, um, another interesting yeah. thing. Sorry, the more interesting part of that fact that you just told me, which I remember from when you first told me, yeah. is that single actors have single paired paid voice actors right. so if that Brad, go along with if them. If Brad Pitt is in a movie, he will have the same German voice actor in every single movie. And that's movie. Brad Pitt's German voice actor. So yeah. some guy is the voice of Brad Pitt and another guy is the voice of Johnny Depp. And every single movie Johnny Depp's in, when it gets translated into German, he gets the exact same German voice actor. Yeah, which is funny because it means that if you watch Rango, right, yeah. and then you watch Pirates of the Caribbean and both you're watching in German, Rango will have the same voice as Pirates, fucking Pirates of the Caribbean, as, yeah. Jack Sparrow. Exactly. So it's funny. It's um, like, they get that same, like, yeah. oh, who's that guy? Like, where was that guy from? Because there are less talented voice German voice actors than there are Hollywood actors that are on the screen. Yeah. So, like, I think I was I was watching a movie with a German friend of mine. And he was doing that same thing you're watching where you sort of, you watch a movie and you see someone's face. You're like, fuck, where have I seen that before? He was kind of doing that same thing. He's like, fuck, who is that? Who is that? And I got him afterwards and he was like, oh, the guy in the bar in that scene had Johnny Depp's voice. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The voice that Johnny Depp would normally be acting. Yeah, exactly. By. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So um, that that was something that really put me off is that the sound is um, the 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 dialogue is all done post. Some of the foley, like where people are like drinking from cups, and it'll be like this like <laughs> thing. Like it's, it's it's so uncomfortable sometimes. But um, to be honest, yeah, it got a lot. Maybe I just stopped looking for it, but it got a lot better. Yeah. Um, after about the first 10 minutes that first scene with angel eyes and um robert is is dodgy ass but yeah but it does get a lot <laughs> robert. better i um, thought that that second scene with angel eyes where he goes back and kills his employer because the other guy that he just killed paid him to kill him i thought that was one of the coolest scenes in the whole film it was yeah, really funny, funny immediately sets it up um i think my my other oh yeah and there's also a lot of um so uh the the main antagonist tuco no sorry not the main antagonist but yeah. tuco has a lot of like He's he's a real like um sniveling bad dude where a lot yeah. of the time like on screen he'll be like looking at Clint Eastwood suffering and he'll be like <laughs> 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 
it's so, it's weird how much of that there is. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's doing it like constantly. And yeah. It's not even again. It seems like comic book villainy because he's not lining it perfectly up with what he's doing on the screen. <laughs> so it's like someone's post dubbing this weird like, like Inspector oh, Gadget. And he shit. did a laugh like a gremlin for like twenty <laughs> seconds over yeah. the top of Clint Eastwood like vying for water, <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's it's weird how much of that. Is. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think it's interesting that Tuco because Tuco's supposed to kind of be the baddie. He's kind of... He's the one with the worst moral compass, I yeah, guess. But he's yeah. the most lovable character in the yeah. whole movie, I think. Um, you kind of... You get the most out of him. You sort of... He's the only character. You sort of learn about his family backstory. I really like the... the um, um, yeah, because yeah. he's, he's a Catholic and he carries around like a little pouch with uh, something in it. And, and um, every time we see something fucked, he crosses himself. But he does it in like such a... <laughs> I have to do this way. So he does it really quickly like while he's like, doing other shit. <laughs> so, so funny. Like he gets to a graveyard and he's got to do it. Like kind of just doing it. <laughs> Fuck is is really like because yeah. obviously Leone would have. Uh, I've I found a fair few of the Italians that I've hung out with have been yeah. quite self-deprecating towards those Catholic traditions. Yeah, like, yeah. It was good to see that sort of shit. Uh, That's fun. Yeah, I thought it was. This movie was so much fun. I would go back and watch it again in a heartbeat. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it, and, and so, I did not expect to. So this film made me want to go watch more westerns like this. I'm tempted. I'm actually tempted now to go back and watch the other two in yeah. this trilogy. I yeah. think I will. No, I think I will as well. And there's another one that's apparently. Fantastic! That's like as iconic as the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly called Once Upon a Time in the that West. That was exactly the other one I was going to say. That was also made ten years after Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. That was oh, made really? in seventy like seven. That's so apparently a that will have changed one. a lot too. Yeah. Um, there's another one listing like westerns that we can recommend that I think that are apparently worth looking up. There's another one that's called Oh man, it's it's a movie that Clint Eastwood then directed in the seventies. Uh, as like a western and it's considered to be another classic and it's called like The Outlaw Jesse James or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't remember the exact name of the film yeah because Clint apparently Eastwood a kind of stopped one. acting in these and started making them yeah and then he started making like the equivalent of modern day cowboy movies with like Gran Torino yeah you know the Outlaw Jesse Whale, that's what it's called. Yeah, um, right. Hang'em High is apparently good. Tombstone is one from like the 40s, I think, with John... Uh, old mate from the first one we were talking about. He, that's apparently a fantastic John one. Wayne, yeah. yeah. But, but the good point is, the good man, the ugly, maybe want to go out and watch more of these and maybe be like, oh, I get it. This is cool. This is really fucking cool. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't even really bother with any like classic westerns, but no. watching anything mid-60s and onwards, I think you'll probably actually get something out of. Yeah. Because they're stopping... Like they, they kind of drop the weird more of the problematic shit. shit. Yeah. And it starts being just about more of that Western frontier yeah. thing. Like, I don't actually think Good, the Bad, and the Ugly has any uh, allusions to Native Americans. It in doesn't it. at all. It's not cowboys versus Indians. Um, it's like it's, cowboys and cowboys and like exploring the it's, it's Mexicans the wilderness and now that. but they're not yeah. they're not the enemy they're just other people because they're on the border yeah. you know um, and that's way cooler that's a way more interesting thing yeah. for, for us in the modern day to, to be exploring so yeah, yeah really really cool I think to round it out I think my favourite scene my two favourite scenes in the film one was the really epic battle scene where Tuco and uh, Clint Eastwood's character Blondie that's what his name is, Blondie. Mm. Tuco and Blondie <laughs> accidentally join the Union Army yeah. <laughs> and then become engaged in this giant battle scene yep. on this bridge embankment kind of thing. Um, and it's a really impressive scene. It kind of reminds me of the battle scenes from that film Gallipoli. Um, yeah, okay. 
really, really impressive. Yeah, where you sort funny of- too. They talk to the commander when they first get there and he's like staring at the bridge and he's like, man, they want us to keep the bridge, but it doesn't matter if we keep the bridge or not. Sometimes I just dream of blowing up that bridge. You know, all I want to do is just blow up that bridge. It's a sin to even think about blowing up that bridge. But man, if I could blow up that bridge, you better believe I'd blow it up in a second. And you're like, guess what happens? Oh, baby. Five minutes later in the movie. <laughs> They pick up a box that literally says it's explosives. explosives. <laughs> take it on down to that old bridge. Yeah. Oh, boy, you better believe that shit got blowed up. Did you see? That was a great scene. Did you see? Uh, so um, they run away from it. They set the charges. They run away from it. And they hunker down. <laughs> this is the see where they had to film it twice. Oh, this was good. But also Clint Eastwood <laughs> nearly dies because really? you see a fist-sized piece of rock. They Fuck. didn't have any protection between them and this massive explosion and it does that thing where you know when there's a really big yeah. explosion like when you watch it on Mythbusters yeah. you see the ground around it like shake up dust the in, ground. like a foot in front of them yeah. dust like comes <laughs> up a foot off the ground and then yeah there's just this like <laughs> where like like literal melon sized rocks <laughs> hit to like a foot to the right of Clint face Makes you I saw it while I was watching the movie and I was like fuck did that almost fucking hit him <laughs> I rewound it and I watched it again and it was like Jesus that's an actual just piece of flying fucking rubble yeah. and then I went and looked up facts and they were like yeah no that actually almost just fucking killed Clint because if they're running away from the explosion the cheapest way to do is well let's just blow up that bridge yeah. and so that's what they did but apparently I think I might be getting my facts crossed no, but I, I think, think it's this right. movie um, they it blew is. up they blew up this bridge in an actual giant real explosion that almost killed Clint Eastwood and the explosion fucked their cameras and they lost the shot no no so what is happened it's what even it more stupid than that so <laughs> they were getting the help of um, the uh, Italian army that was yeah. there and so they gave it they gave the honours of blowing up the bridge to this army colonel yeah. and uh, Sergio Leone was like alright when I say vai which is the Italian word for go blow up the bridge okay so that's when you can press the switch when I say vai <laughs> and this <laughs> And this random crewman happened to be on the wrong radio channel (laughs) later. And he was just like, yep, yep, yep. All good. Bye, bye. Go, go, go. And the Italian army gunner was just like, right, I'm blowing this bridge up. And no cameras were rolling. So they blew the absolute ever-loving shit out of it. No one was ready. No cameras were rolling. They missed it completely. And this is a huge explosion. This is massive. And so what happened was... like, no. Yeah, it just would have been like, ah! The army colonel felt so bad for doing it. He made his men rebuild that bridge. And that's the second bridge that you see in the scene that they again actually properly blow up on camera. <laughs> apparently they only fired the crewman that was on the radio channel uh, and then the army colonel's provision for bringing it back was okay we'll rebuild the bridge and I'll do it again but you gotta rehire that crewman that oh, fucked that's nice. up and so uh, yeah he did <laughs> but it's so, so funny. fucking funny and the time that it did work is the time that Clint Eastwood almost fucking died so imagine that if like, an army colonel blows up the bridge he's like don't worry Kills we'll, we'll rebuild it we'll rebuild it and then it just murders Clint Eastwood he's like I guess I'm not making this fucking movie, huh? <laughs> we'll rebuild him. Yeah, that's right. No, no, I'll just get one of my one of my one of my boys to play him. He doesn't speak English. It literally doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. We'll do it in post. <laughs> oh. Yeah. That's good shit. Yeah. Um Oh, and the Mexican standoff scene right at the end. So I that guess was really getting cool. into some spoilers. Um, yeah. So definitely go watch this because this yeah. is getting into spoilers. And I won't Delve too much into the ending. Yeah. Um, oh, people like us hearing us talk about it. So, yeah. spoilers, oh, my sealed o- section. Yeah. My other favorite scene before we get into spoilers, this wasn't... Oh, sure. This, so, this, this is later yeah, yeah. than this, yeah. Um, was when they leave the monastery and yeah. they're sort of riding away and you've just had this scene where, like, 
Tuco has gone up to his brother, who turns out it to be like a monk the in the monastery, yeah. and his brother's like, "What the fuck are you doing here, man? Get out of here! Like we don't, you, you've, you've, you abandoned your family. You abandoned your family, and we've needed you, and you've never been there for us. Why the fuck would I ever help you?" And yeah. Tuco's like, "Oh, you got to help with me." He's like, "No, fuck off!" And then they're driving away in the wagon, and Tuco says to Clenny, who Blondie, who's driving, who's just looking at this, and he goes, "You know, my brother loves me." He's always happy to see me and we get along so well. And he said, Tuco, you can stay as long as you want. And he sort of just goes on for like minutes and minutes. Just lying to no one that would care about how much he gets along with his brother and how much he loves his family. And how good it is to have a brother that's always going to house him if he needs it. Blondie knows he's lying. Tuco knows he knows he's lying. Yeah, because he overheard him. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, I just thought it's, it was it was a really crazy, nice yeah, scene, and it makes really you feel for him. It does. It really humanizes him. Yeah. Um. And another line that I really liked in that bit was when he was talking to his his brother, and he said, "Hey, man, we had we had a choice. We could either choose to become a monk or a bandit. Yeah. You chose a monk. I chose a bandit. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, okay. Like I kind of, yeah. That's yeah. Like it's it's understandable. He clearly didn't." click with the whole Catholicism thing. <laughs> Everyone like, has that choice, monk or bandit. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it shows that like, yeah, to, he's responsible for his own actions, but to an extent, like also he was, his, he's been placed in a position where he has to make difficult choices yeah. like that. And, you know, it, to an extent, it was easier to do that than to live hard. Yeah. So, yeah, it, I thought that was really cool as I, a humanizing thing. As part of just general comment of the writing of this, you, it's so good because you get all these really fun moments where it's just silly and you get these wacky scenes or you get like Tuco standing over <laughs> Clint Eastwood who's totally fucking like ho 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 but then <laughs> but you the, also the get these really human moments the confederate scene where like they brush the dust off their thing oh, I genuinely so it's you know it's coming <laughs> you know it's coming and Clint Eastwood knows it's coming because he's like Tuco have you ever thought about shutting the fuck up <laughs> and like Tuco's like no don't worry about it man they're in grey they're in grey and then like yeah. they're blue and it's so funny yeah it was actually great. But yeah, then you, yeah, you were saying you do get these really like human moments. Yeah, where they really sort of bring the characters down to earth and help you. With, oh, that was so good. Yeah, so cool. It was, it was actually a good movie. Bring it around to the so ending. My favorite scene was, yeah, yeah um, right at the end. So again, spoilers. And this actually matters. So don't like, don't yeah. listen to this if you're going to go and watch it. Yeah. Pause it. Come back. Cool. Welcome well, back. Welcome back. Hope you Wasn't enjoyed it. Good, it. Right? Why aren't we right? We're always right. We're about to rehash the ending you just sat through. Yeah. So th- that scene right at the end where they're standing in this big central. Uh, kind of arena in the graveyard and the three of them are just standing there and like you know those amphitheaters that naturally occur in in old graveyards graveyards. it was kind of weird but whatever (laughs) um yeah, so like the the three of them are there, and whoever fires is going to need to kill both of the other ones because otherwise they're going to die to the other guy. Yeah, so they're all just like I got to fire two bullets faster than either person can fire a bullet at me. Yeah. And they're all waiting to move because they know that if they move first, the other guy will shoot them. And, and this, whole like, scene, this whole movie has been everyone be like Twitch shooters and yeah. being like perfectly accurate. You and all three of these spot. guys always winning every Twitch shoot off that they have with yeah. anyone. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. It's it, like it how you, cool in a Star Wars movie, you wait for the, 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 the lightsaber fight at the end. Be like, oh, baby, this is going to be so and, good. And I, this, that's one of those times where, where I was talking about I genuinely actually had no idea what who would win. Yeah. And I cared. I cared yeah. what, what happened because I thought Clint Eastwood was probably going to win out, but maybe it wasn't that kind of well, movie. Because they kind of set up all three characters equally. Yeah, which exactly. Is cool. And no character is kind of the good guy that will win out, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, because even Clint Eastwood has, he's, he kills 11 people in the movie, yeah. you know, 11 actual, like, not just bad guys. Not even actors. Clint, yeah. Clint, <laughs> Clint Eastwood, Eastwood insisted. Was his, it was, was really writer. weird. Like, yeah, but I get to murder 11 people. <laughs> 
<laughs> when I shoot people, <laughs> yeah. I, load my gun with real bullets, baby. <laughs> <laughs> when I shoot people, I want to kill them for real. Yep, that's that's what being a libertarian is all about. Um, and nobody loaded my gun with blanks. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was that was a real, that was a cool real good one. Yeah. yeah, I really liked it. Um, all right, so to tie up both films, I yeah. reckon, um, and I don't know if you're in agreement on this, probably. Yeah. Um, I reckon The Searchers, better than Birth of a Nation, <laughs> worse than Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. <laughs> Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, better than The Searchers, yeah. worse than Back to the Future 3. I think really? I enjoyed Back to the Future 3 more than I enjoyed this. You still enjoyed Back to the Future setting. 3 more? Th- I, I haven't seen Back to the Future 3 very much at all, to be honest. I think they're just benefit of being 30 years later or it's whatever. It's not really even a Western. No, but... You know, yeah. in a similar setting, just to uh, give you a yeah, yardstick okay. of enjoyment. I yeah. reckon I reckon um Back to the Future Three is a more enjoyable Western set, comedically entertaining movie, but Good the Bad and the Ugly is probably a better film. Yeah. You know? Um I, to, be, to be honest, I forgot we were doing this bit at the end and I just, <laughs> I don't fine, have no, comparisons. I, just I agree with him. Um where would you rank uh, the birth of a nation there? Uh bottom <laughs> of every movie ever made. Let's just uh, oh. That will always be my answer Things will always be In fact every episode From now on My better than worse than Is going to be This movie's better than Birth of a Nation What's it worse than <laughs> It's going to be a scale From Birth of a Nation To anything else um, oh, One interesting thing That I will leave you with Also as a uh, yeah. Just before we get To the next segment Yeah um, That Dave Kerr brought up Was um, He said Just as a throwaway sentence at a point in the 70s, movies stopped being about life and started being about other movies. Yeah. Which, I thought holy was really fuck, is that a sentence that I'm going to go and think about a lot. So, I forgot to bring that up before. I think what, what I kind of got out of that was like the 40s, 50s, 60s, that's like the invention of cinema. And so, you get this first wave, this boom. first generation yeah. of directors who have nothing to go off. They're not being inspired mm. by any other movies because they're when they were growing up and thinking about what they wanted to do, there were no movies for them to be inspired by, really. Yeah. And so, you get this whole, and I'd never thought about it before, this whole wave of directors making these westerns. And this guy said, they're kind of just about life. And all the popular films back then are kind of just about life yeah because that's all they have to go off and you get in the 70s with like your Kubricks and your Francis Ford Coppola's you get all these directors who are inspired They're by reacting to the first the first wave, wave of, of yeah. cinema and so you get movies that are kind of inspired by cinema itself yeah and that's why you get movies that start to become more elaborate and more complex and more sort of high vision high concept type stuff I thought that was such a cool little quote. It was really interesting. And, and you know, it ties right into what I was saying um, about, like, Back to the Future, which is a movie that is inherently reacting to yeah. the Western, yeah. but in a science fiction setting. Um, or oh, like Star Wars, we said before. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, so, I, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a think about that and, and what we might be able to do about that, because that yeah. shit is so interesting. And it was really cool to go back and watch, you know, normally, like... Yeah, Citizen Kane is impressive, and yeah, when you know about what it was doing at the time, like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting. But it's also kind of a fucking lame movie now yeah. to watch. It's kind like, of how we were boring. saying, like, any movie made in the 70s has the benefit of 30 years of um, inspiration. Yeah, and, and not just the benefit of honing a craft for 30 years, but the benefit of being able to 
give you the heuristic cue of a character just being like, this is the bad guy that you've known and loved. Yeah. But then, oh, look what we're doing. It's not the bad guy. We're changing it, you know? Um, and yeah, exactly. All, all, and like Clint Eastwood's character is like, oh, okay, Clint Eastwood, he's the John Wayne style cowboy, but he's not. He's different. And it, it's more meaningful inherently because you know that he's building upon that John Wayne style iteration of the cowboy in the next iterative sense where he's learned from those lessons and doesn't have those viewpoints anymore and, and exists in a completely different space despite being in the same setting. Yeah. So, yeah, really interesting to see. Even 10 years apart, that progression, and to be able to compare that to films that have been made in the 90s or early 2000s, like Hateful Eight um, is yeah. another one that's a good example of that. Like, that is, you know, that Reservoir Dog style storyline. What's that reacting to in yeah. terms of words, that that takes place almost entirely in a cabin. Yeah. So, like you know, Western films were famed for being so landscape oriented, and then yeah. you have Hateful Eight, which is almost entirely characters bouncing off one another yeah. inside a building where there's never any landscape. You know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it, that was very interesting to absolutely. To see. And yeah. I I think that if I had to pick another movie to watch next, I think that. If there is any unfair comparison between these two films, it is that they're separated by that 10-year gap. Um, and so it's not that one of them's good because it's Italian and one of them's good because it's American. If we'd flipped them, I imagine that it's still probably likely that the one that was made in the 60s would have been better. Like, yeah, you'd watch I agree. Italian. I agree. So I would love to now go and watch an American Western that was made in the late 60s. Early well, yeah, 70s. maybe we could watch um, the, Once that, Upon a Time in... Dude, that, that's another Spaghetti Western. I want to watch oh, an fuck. American one. So I mean, I think right. maybe that cleanest one I talked about the. I didn't realize that was spaghetti wasn't it? The yeah. Jesse Wales one. It's Sergio Leone again. All oh, right. Yeah. Okay. The, the, yeah, um, I definitely watched the, that. Uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. But the, I think the Jesse Wales one is that it's one made by Clint Eastwood yeah, yeah, in the yeah, 70s. Yeah. I think yep. that'd be an interesting one to go yeah. and visit. Okay. Great. Cool. I think overall, my experience with Westerns was really interesting and it's actively inspired me to go and watch more. I really want to go watch more. I, I, I only want to watch more of the later kind of Westerns yeah. because I'm yeah. definitely not interested in the searches or anything. I wasn't really interested point. in that, no. I think those films are, you know, I mean, like, yeah, I German think, propaganda films are interesting yeah. and I don't ever want to watch them, you know? It was, I, it's. They, they yeah. have some shit in them that's not enjoyable now. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I, th- I, th- if I, I think I could probably watch one more, but if that burnt me again, I'd be like, no, fuck this. <laughs> I'm not even interested. It's not. It's like I'd rather watch something else. Yeah. But when it comes to Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and uh, and other Sergio Leone stuff, they do benefit from that ten years of development. I would choose to yeah. watch that over other stuff. Yeah. Now. Whereas there's no way that I would ever watch a movie like The Searches over anything else that I had the choice to watch. Yeah. Know, okay. Except yeah. Birth of a Nation. <laughs> I'm consistent. We're going to have to have that caveat All right. Should we hit it with the news? Yeah, sounds good. All right. Beef Station. Beef Bulletin. All right. You don't have any news this week, do you? I don't have any news, sorry. All right, that's all right. We worked out last time that if I use my laptop to look up the news, the recording also crashes. It fucks out. We lose, <laughs> so, we lose a lot of audio. <laughs> so if you've ever had some like weird cuts, you're like, oh, they, they stopped talking about that bit. I, th- I think there was a bit recently on an episode where we had some news about Die Hard, and we had about a three-minute ed- segment about Die Hard, which just became unrecoverable yeah. because there were so many glitches <laughs> and so shit up. you're yeah. like oh they stopped talking about Die Hard pretty quickly like yeah, that's why <laughs> that's because that actually sounded like the room was on fire yeah and it actually yeah yeah oh god it sounded like worse than that <laughs> um so yeah, that's, so Andy boy's uh, got the news. You I'm, got ca- I'm taking carriage of this news. You got a headline boy. Uh, okay, so the predator uh, is topping the U.S. box office. Um, right. Which oh is interesting. Man. Maybe we should go see that. Yeah, look, I'm going to go see it. 
Um, I don't have a super strong attachment to Predator, um, but well, I did enjoy it when I first watched it. I think the interesting thing about this is that the director of this new Predator movie was a background character in the original Predator movie. He wasn't a background character. He was part of the crew. Oh, really? He I was any- one of the okay. main four well, guys. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So yeah. Shane Black so was super involved. a cast member in the original one, and now he's directing this new one, which yeah, is cool. Which is really neat. And apparently, it's it's... There are parts of it that are really good. And Shane Black's actually a great director. He directed The Nice Guys yeah, uh, a few years right. ago, which is a really cool film, really yeah. funny. So I think uh, it, it ought to be really... It, it, it could actually be really interesting. Is it getting so. good write-ups in that? Well, I haven't you know, looked it up. I think it's getting mixed, but not bad mixed, just like some people saying, yeah, I think if you yeah. just take it... To be honest, I haven't really looked it Like the it up, kind of good so. mixing that you don't see in The Birth of a Nation. Ooh. <laughs> um, I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> Hold on, wait. Does that? I was wrong. Am, am getting... I coming out? Am I accidentally coming out pro or anti-racism? There, I meant to be anti. Just to be clear, listeners. I'm not even going to try and clarify. <laughs> um, it's getting and real bad reviews. Yeah, it's got 34% on RT, 56% on Metacritic. Now, 56 spins high for the Birth of a Nation. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> what does Birth of a Nation have on Metacritic? <laughs> <laughs> Oh fuck! What? I think it's yeah. It's got sixty nine. Oh my god! That is. Oh no! Hang on. Okay, that's a two thousand sixteen adaptation of it. Oh. God damn it! I was. Oh man. We dodged that beef bullet there. Yeah, we did. All right, we got. We got to get off this. Off yep, this. Yep, this yep. track. Let's get off it. Fucking quickly. Next headline. Uh, I don't think it has a Metacritic page. <laughs> All right. But so we- next headline. Um. There's a yeah. There's another clip from the Johnny English movie that's coming out. Um, the one written by the James Bond dudes? No, no, not written by them. But no, I, I don't know what to think of this Johnny English movie. I think it's going to be really bad. Rowan Atkinson's so funny, so he'll be he good is, in it. He's he'll funny, be good in it. I but think he'll be working with absolute dog shit on the script. Ben Miller's and, back for it though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but his he'll be a, it'll be like a cameo because he plays Q basically. So I don't know. I'm not I'm not keen. Yeah. But that's all right. Apparently, there's another clip for it with an Aston Martin in it, which is probably just product placement. <laughs> Patrick Stewart is in the new Charlie's Angels movie. He's playing a character called Bosley. I've never seen Charlie's Angels, so... No, me neither. Who cares? <laughs> um, Thanks for that one. We're mixing some TV in here as well. Yeah. Um, there's a new live-action Avatar series being made, Avatar The Last Airbender series right. being made on Netflix. I feel um, like James Cameron has promised us a million Avatar movies and we just haven't seen anything Yeah, I don't think we really need it. Didn't and he also, say... it is absolutely locked up in that Pocahontas lawsuit, so I don't think anything Avatar what? is coming out anytime soon. Yeah, they're actually being litigated about that whole thing, how it completely ripped off the plot of Pocahontas. Oh, shit. And I guess if you're going to piss people off, don't piss Disney off. <laughs> so... Yeah, um, <laughs> James Gunn. So <laughs> Netflix is yeah they're doing a new series. Netflix stuff is questionable in quality, and the last they just make shitloads. The of live it. action Avatar: The Last Airbender movie was abysmal. Yeah, so, I heard that was awful. Yeah, I saw it. It was bad. Oh man. So hopefully, people love this series. I've watched some of it, and it seemed really good. But people really love it. So yeah. I think that like don't fuck this up. <laughs> you know. Um, We've got more James Bond news this week, don't we? We do, actually. Oh, yeah. baby. So, the 25th Bond has set Kari Fukunaga as the director with a 2020 release date. The most significant thing that he has done is he directed the first season of True Detective. 
Yes, and it was absolutely fucking excellent. That he was really also did, cool. You know how I mentioned in our uh, Sicario 2 episode how yeah. he did a movie called uh, Sin Nombre, which yeah. is that Mexican movie, No Name. Did he do that? Without name, he did that too. Oh, and there that you go. was really good. Right, so, okay. Well, as a, a director, weird choice then. As a director, I think he's he's really interesting. Oh, cool. And, uh, and I am looking forward to it. So, Great. Yeah. Yeah, he did the screenwriter. He's got a screenwriter credit for It, the... 2017 one. Oh. <laughs> the, 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 it's got a screenwriter credit for Stephen, it. Stephen King's It starring the... the, the, starring the, the right. 2017 yeah, version okay. of Stephen King's It, yes. Um, the Disney CEO, uh, Bob Iger, has taken the blame for, quote, too much Star Wars too soon. Um, coming off I mean, the back we of We have some, had a shitload of Star Wars. Coming off the back of some not huge Star Wars movies, like Solo. Yeah. Um, so, I think, yeah. They literally couldn't market Solo, like... Because they usually market these films way out from the release date. They yep. couldn't market Solo way out from its release date because it came out so soon Star after Wars the film. other Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, crazy. Yep. So yeah, he's there's, right. There's going to be more than an 18-month gap between Solo and Episode Nine. Yeah, okay. um, well, so they're saying, to be fair, like, when you buy Star Wars for like a fucking billion dollars, you want to try to get you... Let's get it all out of the door. Let's go crazy. <laughs> I think it's made its money back now. So, you know. A solo? Yeah, no, like I think they have made more money off the Star Wars franchise oh, yeah. than they spent on it. Yeah. That that was just yeah. they were buying a currency basically. <laughs> um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Jamie Fox is starring in a new sci-fi thriller. Yeah, um, which is cool. It I don't think it has a name yet. Cool, um, but I like Jamie Fox. I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He's a great actor, so they're both great actors. Um, yeah. So yeah, keen on that. Um, there's a, this is a, this is a big one. Um, actually, I think we'll wind up on this. Yeah. Ryan Ryan Coogler, who is someone that I don't really know, um, but the important part of him is that he's producing a sequel to a little movie that got made in the 90s called Space Jam. Oh, baby. There is a sequel to Space Jam (laughs) coming out, and it's starring today's version of Michael Jordan. Really? LeBron James. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) You you understand why the way you phrased that was inherently confusing? Because Michael Jordan's not dead yet? today's version of Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan. Oh, the other Michael Jordan. (laughs) That's really cool. LeBron LeBron James is... LeBron James is in it. No, I mean that Michael Jordan is still Michael fucking Jordan. Because there's also the... Person, the the actor Michael Jordan. No, I thought you just meant he was going to come in Black Panther. Yeah, right. Michael yeah, B. right. There Jordan. are two big Michael Jordans. Yeah, one of which is an actor, and one of which were played in the original Space Jam. Yeah, well, currently, to my knowledge, neither of those two are in this film. <laughs> right. So, Very cool that LeBron James is in the movie. That's really funny. There is a sequel. Yeah, I don't know what is going to be the deal with it. There's been some still shots with um uh some like basketball lockers with graffiti from various yeah, I saw that. That was like the, stuff coming yeah, yeah. in. So that's legit. Oh fantastic. Basically no more information on it. Um I kind of missed the first Space Jam film day. to be honest. But um it's, it's it was funny as fuck but very yeah. much a product of its time. Um yeah. and so like I don't think Didn't that miss this Lola Bunny one... though let me tell you. Hubba hubba Yeah. Hubba. Oh man. We won't go there. Um <laughs> I, 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 this concerns me greatly. I don't think it'll be very good um, because well, yeah. these kind of films are always made because they think that they can make money off them, not yeah. because there's more of a story to tell. I mean, we've had so. revivals of those old 80s and 90s uh, franchises in Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, and now, I guess, Space Jam, none of which have been particularly good. So yeah. we'll see where we go. Oh, I was chatting with a friend today actually about The Meg. Um, yeah. Apparently, there's more than five books in that series. Oh, my that I was God. And apparently, so the book was written in like 95. 
the wow. first The Meg book, and he's been trying for like 15 years to get that made into a fucking movie. That means movie. it was written like five years after Jaws came out. Yeah. Yeah, it was like shitty Jaws fit. Dude, it's a crook. And they've made it, yeah, and they've made it into a movie like 15 years. It's just, what the fuck happened with that movie? Yeah, holy How much shit. power does an author have to like, after 20 years or whatever, <laughs> like lobby someone enough to finally just be like, make my movie. And they actually do it. It's fucking insane. I feel like we also, still got- apparently we, it smashed the box office. It's doing very well. We've so. got to do the mag, man. We've got to do it. Yeah, we should watch that and uh, Predator. Why not that and Jaws? This is, this, this is an off-air... Jaws isn't showing in the movies <laughs> at the moment. This, why. Is, this is an off-air pod conversation. Yeah, Listeners, we'll let you go. I reckon we'll at least... De- <laughs> we'll definitely do The Meg and we'll do Predator as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, stay tuned for whatever episode we pull out of our asses next week. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Oscar. Andrew. <laughs> Have a good week. Yeah.